Rudyard Kipling said, I have six honest servicemen. They taught me all I knew. Their names were what and where and why, how and when and who. You ask these questions to any subject that you want to find out, and when you get the answers to those things, you will know a lot about that particular subject. Some of those subjects, like today, don't have an answer. And besides that, it would be very hard for me to condense three months of intense, comprehensive study into the amount of time we have here today because it is deep, and that's putting it mildly. I'm talking about the first three chapters of of Genesis. You can read those, and you know what they say because they mean what they say, and they say what they mean. But when you look deeper into it, you need to look and think outside the box. What I learned about it has been the accumulation of many years and over a period of many things that has happened since then, mostly from my own study. Now, today you might think I've fallen off the deep end, and you just might be justified in thinking that too. Today you just might find out why Adam and Eve were not ashamed to be seen naked by God in the second chapter of Genesis, but they were ashamed to be seen naked by him in the third. You will find why I think Eve was taken from Adam's rib and not from someplace else in his body. You will see that there were two, two great floods, two gardens of Eden. There are three heavens, and the first animal sacrifice, and it wasn't made by a man, and farthest out of all is you'll be getting five glimpses of a possible prehistoric life that may have once contained life. All this and the creation in the first three chapters of Genesis. Now, at the same time, let me make a qualifier here. I've read through the Bible many times, and I don't know of a single scripture that proves that there was life on a pre-Genesis earth. But by the same token, I don't know of any scriptures that said there wasn't. So it doesn't hurt to wonder. I'll not be able to elaborate much today due to the amount of time, but instead I'll let the Bible speak for itself. It says that every word should be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses, so I ask that many scriptures be projected today, and we'll get to that uh, as they come up. I found in these first three chapters very, very fascinating, intriguing story of creation, and I hope you will be interested in it as I have been. I'm sure you're all familiar with the first chapter of Genesis about all the creation, all the things that God created. So I'm going to depend upon you to keep up with me mentally, thinking of those things that you already know, and then we're going to apply this to it. In the beginning was the creation of life, the creation of all kinds of life, sea creature life, wild animal life, domesticated animal life, bird life, plant life, all kinds of life. The word beginning suggests, not just suggests, it oozes, it shouts life, the beginning. Uh, John's Gospel of John says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without, not him, without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The life and light go together, hand in hand. In the beginning, God. God indicates life and righteousness, and we go from there to uh, the words that are called types. A coffin in Egypt. I, the first four words I already mentioned in the beginning, God, now the last four words of Genesis, a coffin in Egypt. A coffin indicates uh, death, and Egypt represents the slavery of sin, starting out with life and righteousness, and Genesis ends with sin and death. These words are called types. They also mean what they say and say what they mean. However, they also represent something in addition to their obvious meaning. Other types throughout the Bible 
uh, include things like Noah's Ark, for one example. Everyone who went into the ark were saved, but those who did not were perished. Now, the same thing happened uh, with the, the uh, it's a type of salvation. Everyone who enters into salvation are saved, and those who did not will be lost for eternity. In Genesis 12, 11, we have another type. It's the sacrifice of the lamb on Passover. It had to be perfect and flawless in any, every way. It was a type for Jesus, who the Bible calls our Passover, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He was also perfect and flawless in every way. Pilate, when he was judging him, say, said, I find no fault in him. He was perfect. Our 238-year-old country is something like the book of Genesis. It was started by our founding fathers in a little chapel on Ryerson Street in Manhattan in the shadow of the World Trade Center. These people were on their knees in prayer together. That original chapel still exists, by the way, but there have been drastic changes to our government since then in a very negative way. At that time, men were praying together. Now they're in bed together. The Bible says Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. That shows how far we've come down in our morals since then. Out of the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence, 24 held either Bible or seminary degrees. In uh, 1992, my wife and I went to Cancun, Mexico. It was a popular tropical resort. The sea there is as blue as the sky. One day while I was waiting for my wife to get ready, that's not news, is it? We were waiting for my wife to get ready for our day adventure. I happened to walk outside the hotel, and there was a telephone pole standing there. And it caught my attention because there was no shadow on the ground anywhere around it. And I walked around it two or three times just to make sure I wasn't missing something, but there was no shadow there. And then I looked up and I saw the reason why. The sun was directly overhead, therefore it was not casting a shadow. And I could see that there was none there. A shadow will form when the sun begins to move across the sky, and it will continue to grow as the sun goes down. The people, the pole, the hotel... Trees, anything that rises above the level of the ground will cast a shadow, and it will gradually keep getting dark until finally darkness fills the entire area and gets totally dark. Now look ahead a few verses, and we'll see that every time a full day is described, it says evening first and then morning. We normally think of it as the other way around, so this is attention getting. One day while traveling to Texas, I pulled in a gas station to, to fill up. When a man came out to put in the gas, that's what they did in those days. They put the gas in for you. He said, good evening. How are you all this evening? It was only about mid-afternoon, and he was calling it evening. It was like the shadows I just described. When God made all the various things on earth, it was high noon. No shadows, no darkness at all, because the perfect light of God was there. Just a total brightness of perfection. But then, after sin entered into the picture, and the shadows of unrighteousness began to appear, it became so dark that God finally had to destroy the sinfulness and start over with Noah and his family. Next words, created. I believe that every natural thing in existence was created by God. It doesn't matter if you look at it through a telescope or a microscope of your naked eye. If it's there, God made it. And you, but the only thing is, I don't know when it was created. You also see some reference to that later, which caused you to wonder about it also. One day was I was in high school. It was a trade school. The instructor was talking about making a hammer. And he said, first you create a handle. And that's far as he got when the class stopped him. And he said, he looked very puzzled. What's the matter? He says, man can fashion it or form a handle or shape a handle, but only God can create. After some discussion, he relented and agreed with us. Next words, the heaven. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Every translation I looked at, except King James, renders heavens in the plural form. Did you ever wonder how many heavens there are? The Bible speaks 
of three. I have one. Would you please project? Second Samuel eighteen nine. Then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree, that's oak tree, and his head caught in the in the terebinth. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth, and the mule went on, which was under him. Other way around. How how high was he hanging? His feet may be that high off the ground. The Bible says it's between heaven and earth. That's the first heaven. I've got a couple more verses to substantiate that. Psalm 36.5 says, Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness reaches unto the clouds. From the earth to the clouds, thy faithfulness reaches to the clouds. In the 600th day of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day all the fountains of the deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven, as the clouds were opened, and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. This was just the first heaven. Now let's look at the second. So David said in Psalm 8, 3 and 4, When I consider your heavens, if you project that please, the work of your fingers, Psalms 3 and 4, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, that's all the sky beyond the clouds. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? That is anything beyond the clouds is the second heaven. The stars, the planets, the suns, whatever else is out there beyond there, that's the second heaven. And now there's also a third heaven, believe it or not. Second Corinthians 12.2, please. I knew a man in Christ who was 14 years ago. Whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up into the third heaven, and how he was caught up into paradise and heard unthinkable things, unspeakable words that was not lawful to man, for man to utter. Uh, not too long ago, I went to a movie, Heaven is for Real. It was about a young boy who died during surgery, and his spirit went into heaven in the presence of God. And while he was there, he met a sister he didn't know he had because she was stillborn. And his parents didn't think he'd understand anything about that. And also, he met his grandfather, and he knew him because when he was living at home, his parents had pictures of the grandfather when he was a young man. And when this little boy got there in that particular place, in the third heaven... Then that little boy recognized his grandfather. He had never met him before. Now, the only difference between these things, there's too many of them to ignore lately. The one in the Bible wasn't allowed to speak. And there have been a number of different people on television I've seen where they talk about uh, experiences they've had in the presence of God. This man was in the third heaven. Did we get that up there? Second Corinthians I want everyone to see that if we didn't. Uh, and do you have three on there too or just two? Anyway, the next one says the third heaven. That's where the Bible says it in black and white. I may not have given that to her to project. It was the third heaven, and it's right there in the Bible in 2 Corinthians 12, it'd be verse 3. The first reference to the possibility of a prehistoric earth is in Genesis 1-2, chapter 1, verse 2. It says, The earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. Bad condition, yes, but still God's creation. He made it, even though it was void and dark and covered with water. The whole earth was covered with water. Most people uh, regard the beginning of the earth with the third chapter. However, the creation actually begins in the Two previous verses. It was shapeless, void of life, dark and flooded, but it was still God's creation. That was the first flood. Noah's was the second. Now we can see this in, in Peter, chapter 2, verses 3, 5, and 6. 
there we are. And for this they were willingly they willingly forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, flooded with water. Now, this is not Noah's flood, because Noah's flood is also spoken by Peter, same one who said this, and Noah's flood is in Second Peter 2.5, same speaker. And God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing a flood upon the world of the ungodly. This is Noah's flood. The first flood covered the prehistoric world, and the second flood was Noah's flood. Now, uh, Hebrews 1 and verse 2, do you have that? Oh, she's right on the ball. God left off, that's the last verse of verse 1. God has left in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Notice the worlds is in plural form. Through faith, we understand in Hebrews 11.3, I didn't give it to her, I don't think. I don't know if I did or not. Yes, I did. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Notice it says worlds, plural, more than one. How about the prehistoric world and the present world? That would allow the plural form to take place. I believe that there was a uh, pre-Genesis world as well as a recreation. I also believe that there was a period of time between verses 1 and 2 when the writer, probably Moses, picks up with the world being covered with water for this biblical reason. Ecclesiastes 3.11. He hath made all things beautiful in his time. He's put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to the end. I, uh, I believe that the pre-existent world, pre-Genesis world, prehistoric, whatever you want to call it, when it was made, the Bible just said, He made everything beautiful in his time. Now, a world that is covered with water, dark, misshapen, devoid of life, does not qualify as being beautiful. So something must have changed it. Now, the Bible says no one can find out, but we can speculate. The earth was without form prior to Genesis 1.2. 1.2, yeah, one. Chapter 1, verse 2. That means that something happened to it. It was no longer beautiful. My granddaughter had a nice car last fall, but when a speeding driver plowed into it, it was wrecked. The earth also was in good form, but is what was wrecked also. It was formless, devoid, flooded, and dark after it was wrecked. There are different schools of thought on the length of time of creation. Some say millions of years, Some believe in the appearance of age theory, where God created things in a relatively short time, but made them look as if they took a long time, an unknown length of time. Peter 3.8 says, But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The word day in that particular verse in the New Testament it's called meetrius. It was a. Um, it means a twenty-four hour day. It was a Greek word. It was interned. It was um, made into the word day. Demet. I can't pronounce it. Meetrius or something like that. Uh, the scripture doesn't say how long it took. Therefore, I can't say for certain. I believe that the prehistoric earth was created many years ago, and that it was wrecked, so to speak, and covered with water. Until Genesis two, one, excuse me, Genesis one, verse two and three, when God said, "Let there be light," and then the ensuing verses that follows it were six twenty-four hour days in which He created everything else. I believe one hundred percent in creation. 
No, I don't believe anything at all about evolution, not one scrap, but I believe everything was created by God, and I, the only problem is I don't know when it was. I think some was created in a pre-existent life, pre-existent uh, earth. The Grand Canyon is one of the things that's pointed to as an example of how a river carved it out of solid rock over a period of millions of years, the evolutionists say. I have been there, and I cannot see how that river, at its widest point, which is only 20 feet wider than this church, according to Joe's statistics, I asked him a while ago, is carved a, uh, a canyon out of solid rock that is 18 miles across at its widest point, no matter how long it's been there. 18 miles. I used to live in Valley Grove. Probably Ohio people may not even know where it is. You, you go through Elm Grove, you go through Tridolphia, you go through Valley Camp, and you go to Roney's Point, and then you come to Valley Grove, and it's only about three miles short of the Pennsylvania State Line. That's how wide the Grand Canyon is at its widest point, and it's over a mile deep, 6,000 feet deep. Now, I can't believe the river, much, not much wider than this church, would be able to carve that much solid rock out, no matter how long it was. Next verse, 3. God said, in the beginning, with a powerful voice, speaking in Hebrew language, let there be light. And needing a nation of Jews, what else would he speak? In 2 Chronicles 7.14, he says, he calls the Jews my people, who are called by my name. When these people learned to speak, there was nowhere else to learn from. The only place they had to learn to speak was from God. And so if he taught them the Hebrew language, that's what they spoke. Even in the New Testament, in Acts 26.13 and 14, Paul was speaking to King Agrippa. And he says, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when they had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It seems like Hebrew language is the language of heaven. We're going to have to learn Hebrew one of these days. And... Continue what we started out with. God said, let there be light. Now, how can there be light? The sun wasn't even created to verse 14. We look into the back of the Bible to find that out. The last book of the Bible tells us what we learn or questioning in the front. It says in Revelation 21:23, the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. That's where the light came from in uh, Genesis there at that point. 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. Because wherever God is, there is light. Now, I rarely, if ever, in my whole life use the word God forsaken. It sounds to me almost like blasphemy, but in the original world that God created, it was dark, demolished, without uh, shape or form. And in, the main thing is, there was no light there, which I believe God must have forsaken it. Now, he created it. It wouldn't be there. But the fact that it's dark showed he must have forsaken it. He was no longer there until recreation. And then, of course, he recreated. And he said there's light. Now, God, God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. I gave you the Greek word for day, and now the Hebrew word for day is yom, Y-O-W-M. It means a 24-hour period of time, just like the Greek word meant a 24-hour period of time. Now, I'm going to skip some verses in the creation here, uh, just so it won't prolong it. And you'll be tired of looking at me by them anyhow. Verse 7, we're talking about the first uh, chapter. God made the firmament and divided the waters. 
from the firmament, which were above it and which were below it. And so God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. The creation of light was the first day. And then verse, we drop to verse 11. Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. The Hebrew text says grass seed and tree seed that the, uh, God said that it bring forth. And then one thing that's been overlooked but's coming to attention to the church in recent uh, years, or actually months, the Lord said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide it from the night and the day, and let them be for signs. It's not the word signs. is something that's largely ignored when we see the signs for heaven in the stars and in the sun and in the moon. And let them be for seasons, for days and for years. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule by day, the lesser night to rule by night. And he made the stars also, and the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And in verse 21, God created great whales and every living creature that moves, which the water brought forth abundantly after their kind, every winged fowl after his kind, and God said it was good. Uh, notice that it says after their kind. That makes uh, evolution sort of uh, out of the question. A dog doesn't give birth to kittens. An apple tree doesn't produce oranges. They produce after their own kind. So there's not going to be any apes that reproduce and come up with a missing link and eventually a person. They reproduce after their own kind. And that was the evening and the morning of the fifth day. And God said, let the, uh, God made the beast of the earth after his kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the earth after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, that was the fifth day. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, all the earth, and all the creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you, listen to this part, every herb bearing seed which is on the face of the earth, and every tree which is a fruit of a tree yielding seed, and it shall be to you for me. The herbs of the ground and the fruit of the trees were what given for man originally for food. And the next verse, 30, to every beast of the earth, to every fowl of the air, to everything that creeps upon the earth, wherein I have given life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. He says the same thing to the animals. He gave the green herbs for meat, for food. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. You all are probably familiar with the life cycle of the 17-year locust. Burrow down into the ground, lay their eggs, and then they die. For 17 years, the locust eggs lay there in the ground, laying there dormant, and they endured the heat of the summer, and the cold of the winter. Sometimes in the winter, the freeze goes down two, even three feet when it's real cold for a period of time in the winter. Those eggs are under the ground. They don't have food. They don't have water. They don't have light. They're subject to heat. They're subject to cold. And yet, after 17 years, those locusts come forth in swarms, and I'm sure that you've all seen them. I once wonder how that compares to the time of creation. When we read all these verses of the scripture, it seems like when we got down to 
the third day, it says, let the earth bring forth grass and trees. Now, all of the rest of the scriptures I read said God either created or God made. But in this case, he says, let the ground, let the earth bring forth. Does that mean that the seeds of the trees and the seeds of the grass were lying dormant from the time the original earth was created for all that time? And then came the life when God dried up the earth and gave it sunlight again. Does that mean that? I don't know. I came up with more was theirs than what I was there that was. There's more questions than answers. Now, this next one is a is a, a doozy. <clears throat> it might be further out than anything I've said so far. It's the fourth reference to a possibility of a nation earth. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. That's the King James Version. Almost every other translation I looked into, it says a living being, but a living soul, I think, fits much better because I don't think a crow has a soul. I don't think a rhinoceros or an earthworm or a rat has a soul, but they're living beings. There's life. They are living. So I think a living soul fits much better. So a man must be something special. So when God created man, he made him after his own image. Now, God is a three-person being. Uh, in um, Colossians 3, or no, excuse me, 2, 8, 2, 8 uh, it says that, uh, let me get my gear, get in gear here. Um, Sorry about that. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In him, in Jesus. He said, let us make man in our image. Uh, he was talking about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just like it says in Colossians 2.8. Now, his spirit is his life, just like a three-part being. Man's spirit is his life. His body, which you can see, is obvious. And his soul, which is man's inner self, his personality, his intellect, his will. The Bible says that the soul and the spirit cannot be divided except by the word of God. And I'll get back to that in a moment. Now, when my children were all young, we went to the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh. The first thing you see when you enter there is a reconstructed skeleton of a dinosaur, 60 feet long, with a head on a long neck that can reach half the length of its height. A 60 foot long and can reach 30 foot in the air. And I went to the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C., where there's one even bigger. It was 80 feet long, and its vertical reach was 40 feet. Others have been found, which are even larger than that. In Argentina, one was found to be 130 feet long, and half of that length was in vertical reach, and he was weighing as much as 14 elephants coming in at 56 to 98 tons. Statistics according to Google, by the way. I don't think Noah would have room for many of these on his ark. Do we have a photo, please? There is a leg bone of a dinosaur. That's the equivalent from the pelvis to the knee. Now, from the knee to the ground to the ankle would be one similar in length to that. Now, can you imagine an animal... That big, humongous, how big that animal must have been. Now, how many of those would Noah get in his ark? Plus, if an elephant takes three to 400 pounds of food today, can you imagine how much these guys would have to eat? I think these people, I think they live. I saw that here's the evidence of a, of a bone. And I think that they lived in the prehistoric earth. And I think where the earth was destroyed. They were buried, and their skeletons were found many, many, many un uncountable years later. I can only imagine what it must have been like then. Dinosaurs of all chickens, sometimes as, as small as chickens, 
of all sizes. In my research, I found a museum which, ha- which houses a petrified stone formation that looks like a man's footprint being overlapped by the footprint of a dinosaur, probably as big as a cow. It was taken from a stream bed in Texas, which at the time was soft clay. It shows that the man and the dinosaur lived at the same time. Human-like skeletons had been found elsewhere also. A dinosaur leg bone, which you just saw, I wrote this before I found that picture, which just came out Friday's supplemented Wheeling newspaper. A dinosaur leg bone was found, found that was taller than the man who was beside it. The ones with the long necks were herbivorous. They're the ones who eat vegetation. Their long necks enable them to eat the leaves off the tops of big trees. But the little short ones with the short necks, very powerful looking creature, that they were carnivorous, the ones with the big teeth. And that brings up a question. Before then, the carnivorous ones, by the way, are what the movies and television shows as being the ones that chase people all around Jurassic Park or wherever. That brings up a question in Genesis 2-7, which we read, man became a living soul until he was remade on the sixth day of creation in the new earth when he became a living soul. When the town bum went into the bar, he was sober when he came out, but while he was there, he became drunk. He wasn't at first. Now, I wonder, is it possible that the dinosaur man, the one whose tracks were found in the same stream bed as the dinosaur, was that man something like the dinosaur? A two-part being, a body, which you can see, and spirit, which is life. But it's not until Genesis 2-7 that man became a living soul. I wonder if those prehistoric people, prehistoric, um, uh, what is it, word, anthropologists, I wonder if they want to try to put this all together. And I don't even know if I'm right. That's why I'm saying I wonder if this has happened. Was it possible that they were two-part beings and didn't have a soul? He became a living soul. Arca just found a human skeleton. I'll rephrase that. Archaeologists found a human-like skeleton, which were buried at first with crude instruments and primitive tools. Compare that to Adam, who was a brilliant name. The first thing Adam had to do, God told him to name all the birds and the animals. He must have been a brilliant man. He wasn't like the caveman or the dinosaur man, if there was such a man. But he had a great deal of skill. And before Adam's family died, before even Seth, his third son was born, they knew how to make brass and iron and even musical instruments. Now, that's in the fourth chapter. Now, how's that compared with the crude tools and the weapons that the alleged caveman made? There's no comparison. That's far out, but that's what it means to think outside the box. The next thought, the garden that Adam and Eve were in is not the only garden of Eden. It's the fifth reverence to a prehistoric earth in the second Eden. Do we have that projection, please? Ezekiel 28, 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were uh, the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in the Eden, the garden of God. There it is, the garden of Eden. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was repaired for you on the day in which you were created. He was talking about the king of Tyre, but the king of Tyre was another type 
was another type because he, the king was not full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And the king of God, the king, excuse me, get my tongue in front of my eye teeth, and I can't see what I'm saying here. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, you were in Eden, in the garden of God, and it says these were these timbrels and pipes were for you and prepared for you in the day you were created, and that gives the, the uh, type away. The king of Tyre was born. But angels are created. So it says, in the day in which you're created, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the fiery stones. And you were perfect in all your ways until the day you were created. This is actually describing Lucifer. Uh, but we don't have time to expand into that area, too. It's talking about Lucifer. He was created, and he was in... God's uh, presence as a perfect being. It says perfect in beauty and full of wisdom. And that was representative of Lucifer. And uh, I think that uh, Lucifer's job was to collect all the praises that the heavenly host, that all the angels, archangels, seraphs, cherubs, everyone, and the, the uh, people on earth were delivering to him, and he was what he was doing, he was trying to siphon off some of this for himself. And I think after a while, God found out he was, well, of course, God knew everything, knew what was happening, and he decided this is no good. Since there was no evidence of this garden ever found subsequently in the Bible, it strongly suggested it may have occurred at an earlier time, perhaps the previous earth. We just don't know. One thing we do know is it was not a vegetable garden, but a mineral garden. And listen to what Isaiah has to say about it. Could you put Isaiah up? The fall of Lucifer. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. You are cut down to the ground, you who wakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. That is where he wants to be. The north was the seat of authority. I will send above the heights of the clouds. I'll be like the most high. He wanted, he had aspirations of becoming like God, be like the most high. And you should be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Is it possible that something sudden happened to it? And it, and uh, it was demolished very suddenly. Was there a prehistoric earth, and did it take a drastic hit suddenly that demolished it and changed it into a dark, flooded, shapeless mass? Is that a possibility? Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 10. He had just sent his disciples out two by two to minister. They were coming back, and he was talking to them. And then very abruptly he said this, Unto them I beheld Satan... As heaven fall, Satan as lightning fall from heaven. When is the question? Did this happen? Unknown answer. Was this the last straw? Was Lucifer the last straw falling from heaven, causing its destruction? God out to go and down to the earth and no more. He covered it over with water and shut off the light. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say that. The north, as we mentioned earlier, was the place of God's throne. If you want to know where heaven is, look to the south. The Bible says the earth, I think we've got it on here, uh, Job 26, 7. He stretches the north out over an empty place and hangs the earth upon nothing. North of what? Himself, obviously. There was no, anything else to be north of. He stretched the north out over an empty place and hung the earth upon nothing. So that means if you want to know where heaven is, it's to the south. It's the opposite direction of where north is. And he said he put earth in the north. Was there a prehistoric earth? We don't know. King James Version said that he saw Lucifer as lightning fall from heaven. We just don't know when.
I'll be short. I'll be done shortly. In Genesis 2.8, God planted a garden eastward in Eden. There he put the man whom he had formed. He had not spoken just to fill a spot in the text. Timothy 3.16 said, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. The man of my be righteousness. All scripture. That means eastward is a word that's in scripture. It was not spoken just to fill a place, but to indicate something. Eastward fits very well into the creation story. It says that eastward is where the sun comes up. It's where the start of a new day, a new beginning. How appropriate. A new day and a new beginning. It fits into creation very well. And the Lord God caused, caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And the Lord took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh thereof. God did not take from Adam's head so he would be Eve's boss. He didn't take from his feet so that he could walk over her. But he took from his side where he could protect her and hold her close to his heart. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made a woman and brought her to the man. And I didn't ask Tommy ahead of time uh, what the sign is for a woman. I think it is this. <laughs> but is that close? <laughs> well, anyhow. <laughs> I don't know if it's the right sign for a woman, but it is a sign. Uh, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she's taken out a man. Therefore shall a man leave father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and she shall be one flesh. And verse 25, they were both naked, and the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. That reminds me, going into the department store, and you pass this display of women's bathing suits, you can learn something new everywhere you go. I found out what to do with recycled handkerchiefs now. Anyway, they were both naked, but they were made in the image of God, and God clothed them just as he was. Now, how was that? O oh Lord my God, Psalm 104, verse 2, please. Uh, you cover yourself with light. He covers himself. You are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. You cover yourself with light as a garment and stretch out the heavens like a curtain. That is how God was covered. I believe that's how Adam and Eve were covered. You've probably seen TV special effects where they wanted to conceal somebody and they would put a bright light on them and they'd, you couldn't see anything but the light. I believe that's how Adam and Eve and God must have looked at that particular time. Now, chapter... Three opens with the snake, a type for snake uh, for Satan was already there. When three opened, the snake was already there. Now, if he would have created the snake then, it would have said so. But since the snake was already in existence, that means he must have it must have been already created, possibly in the first earth, because it wasn't described in any of the creation stories of the other animals. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. The fruit, incidentally, is not an apple. I forgot about what I started out about how Adam and Eve and, and uh, God were clothed. But then they sinned. And something happened, and they changed. They were no longer covered with light, and had a curtain, and clothed with honor and majesty. In the uh, second chapter of Genesis 25, naked is interpreted from the Hebrew as erom. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but you'll get the idea. It was just, they were dressed just as God was described as being dressed as we had in Psalm 104 up there. But after they had sinned, in chapter 3, the word for naked changed, and that meant 
totally bare. That's why they were ashamed in that chapter, and previously they were not. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Yea, God has said, You shall not eat of the tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the tree of the garden. And apples, incidentally, do not grow in that climate, so you have to come up with another fruit if you want to tell the story. But the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes will be open, and you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. And moving along, God said, The man has become like one of us after having eaten of the fruit, to know what's good and evil. Now lest he put forth his hand and also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove the man out and placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims with flaming sword. Cherubims are the most powerful creatures that God created. Satan is a cherubim. A flaming sword was turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Driving the man out of the garden actually did him good service. It was for his benefit. If he would have stayed in the garden in his sinful condition, he would have never had the opportunity for salvation. So God uh, brought him out of the garden and then closed the door. After his sin, David asked the Lord to forgive him, sin with Bathsheba. And it's the same pattern as a story of creation and renewal. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew the right spirit within me. Create and renew. I think what I've done today in the beginning was to create the original earth and then renew it. I think that's what God did. Now, there are many supportive scriptures that I didn't get into because I was not able to take the time to do so or have time to speak after I did. And so I want to wind up with the words of Shakespeare. Start out with Kipling, but end with Shakespeare. He says, to thy own self be true. What you believe, if it's based on the word of God, stick with it. To your own self be true. Not what somebody else says. Not just because I said it. Not just because the pastor said it. But because you believe it in your own heart. To thine own self be true. I'm going to conclude with that. 